Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc., Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. Tom, it's been fascinating chatting over the last few episodes about uh, Robert Black and the horrible crimes that he committed, both in Scotland and England. And I'm sure, as we'll discuss, there were many more that uh, perhaps we never got to the bottom of. But I'd like to to get towards finishing this off tonight by looking at the the police inquiries uh, once he was convicted, because you and I know that once a case a, a criminal is convicted, in a lot of a lot of cases that's not the, the end of anything. It's the start, especially serious crimes, especially a travelling criminal, serial criminal, criminal over a thirteen year period, ten year period, shall we say? What would be going on once he's convicted then in the bigger picture for Robert Black? Well, two things happen, Simon. You're absolutely right, of course. Once you, once you find and convict someone like Robert Black, you then got to sit and say, well, what else has this man done and over what period? And you then set out to try to establish exactly where he was at any given point in time over how many years he was at liberty and offending. Now, Robert Black, he was a middle-aged man when he was arrested. He had worked a long time in the transport and haulage business. So he'd been at large and with the opportunity to offend for years. And so it was a meticulous exercise of trying to place him at any given point. And what they did, what Hector and Roger Orr did was they said they looked at offences that they knew about of murdered or missing children, and then they tried to eliminate him. Not to tie him in, but actually to eliminate him. To say, well, here is a case in such and such, so and so. Now, from his work records, we know that he couldn't have been there. And and do it the other way around. They were doing that. But of course, as they were doing that, the world's attention was focused on Robert Black. Because while it had made Scottish headlines that he'd been arrested for the abduction in Stow in 1990, his conviction of the three murders in 1994 brought world attention to Robert Black. And detectives all across Europe and Ireland all of a sudden said, wait a minute, who is this guy, Robert Black? And they dug out all their cases of, of missing or murdered children and they started to ask questions. And so we had to, in Northern Borders, we had to open a bureau to receive all these calls uh, and to handle all these inquiries. And uh, Roger Orr, who later became head of CID in Lothian Borders, he took responsibility for all of that aftermath because by that time Hector Clark had retired 
So Roger Orr inherited the aftermath and the very clever, careful putting together of all the bits and pieces to see where Robert Black could have been. And then, of course, once you find out where he could have been in Germany or he could have been in Amsterdam, you then have to go and seek the evidence. You have to go back to the police in these places and say, well, actually, we can't eliminate him from your investigation. What evidence do you have? Do you have sightings? Do you have forensics? Do you have anything at all? And in some cases, they had nothing. In some cases, they didn't even have a, a body. I mean, Jeanette Tate in Devon and Cornwall was a good example of that, where they had never found Jeanette's body. And there was, a, there was an abduction in just outside Amsterdam. There was one in Germany. And then, of course, there was Jennifer Cardi in Northern Ireland. So all of these, and many, many more, there was any number. And, of course, if you, you know yourself, Simon, if you've got an unsolved crime of that magnitude and somebody's arrested, even though it's in the side of the world, so we had people from Canada and America and Australia saying, he wasn't by any chance uh, over here, was he? Um, yeah. And you can understand that. So it became a huge ongoing investigation to actually tie down as far as we could anywhere where, where Robert Black was, where a crime, of, a serious crime had been committed. And what you get is maybe suspicions, maybe, but we never got enough to go to court. Other than the girl Jennifer Cardy in Northern Ireland, whose murder had been outstanding for some time. Were you party to that, Tom? I take it you were still in communications and you know Detective Chief Superintendent Orr. So are you aware of how that came about, how the Irish connection was made? We knew about Jennifer Cardy from the word go because Jennifer Cardy was abducted and murdered in 1981. She was actually abducted before Susan Maxwell. So as soon as we started to look at similar crimes to Susan Maxwell's, of course we knew about Jennifer Cardy's murder right from the very get-go because she was abducted and murdered the year before Susan Maxwell disappeared. So while we were looking around for other similar crimes in 1982, we came across Jennifer Cardy. The problem was that at that time, and wrongly, at that time in Northern Ireland, Times like that, there was a general belief that there was some kind of sectarian element to it, that she had been murdered perhaps as a revenge against her parents, or that somehow there was a sectarian terrorist sort of element to it. Now, of course, viewed now, in hindsight, that's ridiculous because not all crimes can be connected to that. But at the time, remember 1981, it was the time of the hunger strike, it was a time of really intense violence and upheaval. Murders were to a penny in the north of Ireland. And so it was not unreasonable, I don't think, for the police to think, well, this has got to be connected in some way. And so while we always knew about Jennifer Cardi, it was kind of parked off to off stage right because we suspected that there might be a local element to it. Now that Black was convicted, then it was a different matter. And of course, things had moved on in Northern Ireland. Things had calmed down a bit. And so detectives in Northern Ireland dug out the case again and started to look. And of course, asked the million dollar question, could Robert Black have been in our area on that day at that time? And that's that's really was the question they asked Jeanette Tate, Devon Cornwall, Jennifer Cardy, and also Unsolved Murders in Holland and in Germany. And this is where all the data from the petrol receipts and the, the work records and the receipts that Robert Black had fastidiously kept, this mound of rubbish and paper 
that was all gathered and placed on the floor of one of our gymnasiums at one of our big police stations. And it just like, like a, a mass of paper and rubbish, each item of which had to be picked through to carefully see whether that fitted with something else and added to the picture. And of course, eventually, uh, we discovered that indeed Robert Black had been in Northern Ireland at the time of Jennifer's disappearance, and that he had been on the continent of Europe delivering posters for his firm, both near Amsterdam and near Germany. So these murders were very, very, of very great interest to us. And I know that Roger Orr had a very strong feeling that Robert Black was involved in these. I'm conscious that you knew great detail about Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg for obvious reasons uh, and were involved in the inquiry. How much are you aware of the, the Jennifer Cardy disappearance, abduction um, and, and the inquiry over there initially? So, Not as much, except to say that it was very similar in pattern. It was a snatched abduction. Jennifer had gone out on her bike in a rural area, much like Susan Maxwell had, although Susan Maxwell was on foot, of course, but she'd gone out on her bike and she'd just disappeared and the bike was found off the side of the road. Now, funnily enough, Jeanette Tate in Devon and Cornwall had also been taken from a bike. In her case, the wheel was still turning. So again, we knew that there was not much time. So this was not somebody that drew up in a long conversation. or anything. This was somebody that drew up beside the girl and just whipped her into the van and away. And Jennifer Cardy's body was found some days later in a loch some distance away. And of course, that was very much like Sarah Harper's deposition. Sarah Harper, you remember, was found in a river. So there was a lot of things that added up. And then, of course, when we found out that Robert Black was in that vicinity, then it was really a matter for the police in Northern Ireland. And Roger Orr went across to help them and to try to give his advice about, you know, lining up and, and gaining evidence, much as he'd done over our three cases. And, well, you'll know as well as I do that the police in Northern Ireland are incredibly adept at interviewing techniques. They are really, really good. And they've, they've reason to be good, of course, because I've had incredible experience, particularly in the counter-terrorist field. So if he was going to break and he was going to tell the truth, and he was going to confess to anyone. I would put my money on the police in Northern Ireland. And eventually, they didn't interview him till I think it was about 2008, 2009. It was, it was a long time after he'd been convicted. He had aged considerably, being in prison. And also, he had nothing to lose, really, because he knew that he wasn't going to get out of prison. So there was an element of, well, what's he got to lose? Why don't we play on his better side. Of course, that was um, that was a mistake because he didn't have a better side. And he still did not confess to anything. But he did try to play games with the Irish detectives and to watch the interview and to, to hear the interviews fascinating because what he did was he said, oh, well, you know, I've got this interesting children and I sometimes have these fantasies. And he then went on to describe a fantasy which in actual fact was the exact replica of the abduction and murder of Jennifer Cardy. And it was almost as if he was toying with the police and saying, I know, and I know you know, but I'm not going to give you any evidence. You know how sometimes, you'll have had this yourself, you take someone out of prison to interview them, and they actually enjoy it. It's a day out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a day of celebrity. And they have a yeah. great time. It's a change of scene, and they get a chance for a, 
a mental joust with people. I mean, we found this with, with Angus Sinclair as well, the world's end murderer. You know, he'd been in prison for most of his life, so a day out at the police station, he's a bit of a celebrity, and, uh, and he's in control again, you see, that's the thing. Yeah. He's powerful again, um, because people call him by, well, Robert, Mr. Black, all this sort of stuff, and, he, and so he feels as if he's a player once again. And so that's what Black did, but what the Irish detective managed to do was to, very, very cleverly, in my view, very, very, very good interview, they managed to box him into a corner where he actually admitted being there at the time and the place yeah. uh, of Jennifer's abduction. And, of course, that was hugely compelling uh, evidence. And eventually, I think it was as late as 2016, which is, you know, a long time after uh, his arrest, he was actually convicted of the murder of Jennifer Cardi. And he should have been convicted of the murder of Jeanette Tate as well in Devon and Cornwall because they had papers all drawn up and were ready to go. Um, but Black cheated us ultimately and died before he could be brought to book for, for the murder of Jeanette Tate. And the crimes in, in the Low Countries, in Holland and, and in Germany, well, I'm afraid um, he may be a strong suspect, but um, he was never brought to book for these either. There's so much in there, Tom, that last five minutes that you've spoken about. And I'm no doubt we'll come back to it because we will speak about police interviews, interrogations, whatever you want to call them. And the RUC were very, very specialised in that field. Well, absolutely. But there was one other very important thing that happened as a consequence of the back inquiry. It proved the concept of Holmes. Yeah. Now, Holmes came in in about 1987 and quite frankly, a lot of the older SIOs were very, very wary and suspicious of it. They didn't understand oh. computers. They were nervous about having their murder investigation on some fancy gizmo and not on the wee cards that they were so familiar with and they could read. And it was a real problem trying to get SIOs to put their crimes onto homes, but it was absolutely essential that they would board the training for the homes operator. Yes because they were only as good as their experience. And I remember I was a detective super by that time and saying to the DCIs, look, you know, I know it's a, a straightforward case. You've got a suspect, Music. but run a mini homes. Oh, I, 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 no, uh, I tell you, no, I'm happy with the card, happy with the card. And what the Robert Black uh, inquiry did was it convinced a lot of DCIs, actually, there was quite a lot in the homes thing, because they saw how Roger Orr could interrogate the home system, how he could say, okay, we're looking for a red car, which was in, I don't know, the Scottish borders, red car, Scottish borders, bing, and up it came with six red cars. And so I was very, very aware of how comforted and reassured a lot of the older SIOs were just by the efficacy of home. So it kind of proved the concept. Um, of the home system. I remember working murder inquiries in the, the 80s and 90s, especially in the 80s when homes, when the period you're talking about right now, and there was two inquiries going on. There was two administrations going on. There was the homes administration going on, and the boss was still keeping records, keeping hands. <laughs> you know, he was running his own inquiry alongside. Yeah. In case somebody unplugged the computer. I can understand that. I mean, because we were all... Our knowledge of computers, and you might say they still are, our knowledge of computers are pretty minimal. And we were all dreadfully worried that by pressing the wrong button, everything would be lost. 
And of course, for a DCI with a, with a murder investigation, where so much professional and personal pride was tied up in it, you know, you know where you're taking that. Um, you know where you're, you're taking that risk. So yes, the, the, that was a, that was the sort of the crossover period. You know where you had belt braces and self-supporting trousers. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're experts now. I switched this on myself tonight, actually. <laughs> Very good. Well, the thing that always struck me about the police service is how adaptable police officers are, and it, almost any new set of circumstances they will quickly adapt. And I, I think that's down to the fact that the police service is a, is, it's a, a mongrel organisation where you have all sorts of different people with different styles, different experiences. You've got your ex-tradesmen, you've got your ex-soldiers, you've got a sprinkling of university graduates, and they all have a place. I know some people who were old time-served detectives who actually took to homes and became very, very adept at homes operation. They just they just had a bent for it. And then I know other people who were much brighter and better educated who just couldn't do it. And there we are. But but the good thing is that we had enough of a mixture within the police service that we can always find someone who could do it and someone who could who could develop themselves. And I think that was a this is why I think that this idea about oh you know we should all we should recruit from universities and we should all be graduates and all this it's utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. It's that diversity that makes the force what it is. Tom, we'll come back to that again as well. There's so many topics we're touching on here, but I want to round off the Robert Black if we can. And something strikes me that you and I know that when we catch a thief, when we catch a, a bank robber, when we catch a fraudster. We know that uh, we usually get the tip of the iceberg. From what we can prove, uh, moving backwards, the time and resources that we've got to dedicate to that. And I'm wondering about Robert Black because there are so many children, and I need to be a bit sensitive here because there are hundreds and hundreds of families in the UK whose children are missing and have been for a long, long time. I think it was the tip of the iceberg with Robert Black. There was children's clothing found in his house. He, he mustn't have been successful every time he tried. There were a lot of near misses. I think in the first phase of the investigation, Hector Clark did an outstanding job. And, you know, it's funny because distance lends focus. And reading and writing about this now 40 years later, and having had, I was a young DI, I was just, I was only in my early 30s at the time, I was a young fella. But viewed now, when I look at what Hector Clark did and how he played that, I just wish he was alive today. See, why God, you played a blinder. And, I, and I'm happy to say that his son, I'm still in touch with his son. And I always make a point of copying his son and say, you know, you should be very, very proud of your old father. Tragically, Hector developed dementia towards the end of his life and uh, we were robbed of um, that tremendous intellect and that spark that was in him. You know, I've, I've actually met very, very few master detectives in my long career, uh, Simon. I've met a few who thought they were. <laughs> and I've met a lot of geysers. <laughs> but I've met a very, very few master detectives. I'll tell you what, he was as close as they came. He was an outstanding character. Now, Roger Orr, who took over from him and who Hector appointed, was exactly the right man for the job because Roger has a fastidious 
approach, a systematic approach. And that's the other thing about Hector. He chose people wisely. And, yeah. and Roger, Orr, Roger Orr would have missed nothing. And I can tell you that what Roger Orr says is that he thinks Robert Black was responsible for other crimes. He thinks Jeanette Tate. He thinks there were crimes in, in Holland and Germany. And he thinks a lot of the other crimes that have been discussed, he dismisses them because they can prove that Robert Black was nowhere near it. Now, there's a lot of miscarriages of justice happened, Simon, and, and, and guilty men gone free, that when Robert, someone like Robert Black is arrested, they say, oh, well, he'll, he'll be responsible for that murder and that murder and that murder. So we don't need to look anymore. And he'll be responsible for all these crimes and just close the book. Roger Ord never, ever, ever went down that lazy road. What I was alluding to there, Tom, and I obviously didn't allude to it very well because you misunderstood me slightly. And yes, that's fantastic information. I understand that. But perhaps a lot of Robert Black's activity, shall we say, didn't result in a, a murder. We know there was a lot of near misses, and we know that. When you start, I mean, this, this is a topic all for itself, is missing persons. And how we dealt, and in many cases didn't deal, with missing persons in the time period we're talking about. I mean, quite honestly, it made me shudder. It makes me shudder to think about it. Yeah, when you look at the figures, and we'll do that. We will dedicate some time to that moving forward. To round off with Robert Black then, apart from the lessons that we learned as a nationwide, as a police force, and probably further afield than that. Well, that's what I meant to ask you, Tom. You said a master detective. Mm. What would you say about the traits? You've touched on one. It has to be good at identifying uh, in order to delegate properly and, and delegate effectively. He has to be able to identify the strengths and weaknesses of his fellow mm -hmm. officers in order to get the maximum from them. What other attributes would you give to a master detective? We could start a course here. <laughs> you know that. Well, he's got to be cool. He's not got to uh, panic under pressure. And the pressure is immense. The pressure was immense on Hector Clark. Absolutely immense. He's got to be cool. He's got to be logical. He's got to follow systems and not gut instincts. He's got to choose people wisely. And he's got to trust in people. And what Hector Clark did was, Hector Clark was the first person I ever saw had a policy file before they were called policy files. And he would say to all these disparate teams, to look, these are the main lines of inquiry. And it was just two lines on a piece of paper, you know. Da, da, da. Now, you know, we've all got to be marching in that direction. And so all of these attributes, and I've no doubt there are others. And what Hector was also very good at was Hector knew what he didn't know. He was unfamiliar with computer work, but he had confidence in much younger subordinates that they did. And he put their trust, he had, he had the confidence in himself to put confidence in others. And a lot of time when you get senior detectives second-guessing their juniors, it's actually because they're second-guessing themselves. You know, and you, you described one of your old bosses who used to um, interrogate people closely and almost try to humiliate them. That, to me, indicates that um, it's someone who was perhaps uh, not comfortable in their own abilities. Very often in a lot of fields in life, when you get someone who excels, like Hector obviously did, you said one of the very few uh, in your whole lengthy career, I'm thinking how many senior detectives you knew and worked with. Sometimes when you get that special level of excelling in a field, 
there's a price to pay. Was his personal life affected? And I know lots of senior officers, not just senior officers, I know lots of officers where the daily pressures of the job, they take it home and it has a terrible effect on their home life. No, he left one area of his life. He was very, very keen on football. And and, um, and despite that, he was a, a, a convinced Hearts fan, which, I mean, you, oh. I, know you, I know you might think these two things are, are diametrically opposed, <laughs> but, but he was. <laughs> And his his son was very interested in ice hockey, so he, he did all that stuff. He could do that. He could shut one box and open another. To be able to shut that box, you've got to have confidence in mm. the people who you work with. And yes. uh, he was a very good picker of people. I suppose we all learn from it, and you try to replicate the good points in your bosses. And sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's it's subconscious. That you tried yeah. to do that, but uh, sometimes people are born, uh, Tom, with a special purpose. It seems, isn't it? And it seems that, as far as Robert Black and his horrific crimes are concerned, Hector Clark was the very man for the job for that particular period in time. Yeah, he was born to be a detective, and there's no question about it. Everything about him, all the attributes he had, his natural attributes, his natural charm, his sense of humour. His inquisitiveness, he was drawn to people, his logic, all of that fitted him perfectly to be a detective. The only attribute you missed out that I used to say to people was the main attribute to being a detective is to be able to listen and shut up. Well, well that's true, yeah. And Hector was very good at that. As his senior officer's conferences, he used to listen. And he used to sometimes seek the opinion of very, very junior members of staff, um, support staff. Uh, computer operators. What do you think about that? And he would also say, "What do you What do you mean? What do you mean by that?" And he he, yeah. he would listen. And he was not averse to changing course either. He wouldn't stand at his dignity. It's okay, you yeah. know. That was a good yeah. idea yesterday, but today this is a good idea. <laughs> We're very lucky to have Hector Clark. Now, would Black have been caught anybody? I mean, he was caught by chance in Stow, perhaps. Would we have been as well prepared with all the evidence? Certainly not because um, it was Hector who drew all that together. As you know, it's very difficult to, to second-guess these things. Who knows? Who knows? But I have no doubt that Robert Black's arrest in 1990 in Stow saved the lives of children. He would not have stopped, and he would have continued to abduct and murder as long as he possibly could. There's no question in my mind about that at all. And Tom, we were lucky to have Hector Clark. We were also very lucky to have you to run us through this uh, this horrific story over that period of time, which incorporates so much change and so much learning going on by everyone involved. But at the end of the day, and I'm sure we'll come back to Black because that case is so encompassing of a whole period in our, in our police careers and, and in the police in general that we'll probably refer to it many times moving forward. Yeah, but we, we went into the, the Robert Black case with decent investigators but hopelessly inadequate systems, and we came out of the Robert Black case with, as better detectives, with much, much better systems. And, and that, I think, fitted us very, very well for what was to come in the future. When you look at Holmes II, forensic science gets, and DNA gets all the credit for the revelations and the huge improvement in criminal investigation. And it deserves that credit, but the development and the use of Holmes was just as influential for the last 
10 years. If there's one unsolved murder in Scotland, then it's only one. They've got a phenomenal rate of success because they've got good people and good systems. And that's a legacy of the Robert Black case. And that's a legacy of all the hard-won expertise, all the learning between 1982 and 1990. Which goes on to this day, the learning. And that's what we're going to cover moving forward from in our next episode is some of the, the lessons that have been learned from these major inquiries over the years. Thanks just now for doing that, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining Tom and I on what's been an emotional and intriguing journey through this six-part series where we've delved into the unsettling and tragic case of Scottish child killer Robert Black. We've explored the details together of this long inquiry and it's given us an important opportunity to understand the complexities and the ramifications of such devastating events. Whilst our hearts ache for his known victims, Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, Sarah Harper and Jennifer Cardy, and of course most likely Jeanette Tate and their respective families, This series aimed to shed light on the particular circumstances of each case. The long and complex investigations that followed over many years and the very complicated process of eventually bringing Black to justice. All narrated by our senior officer who was actually part of that process. Our hope is that by discussing and analysing these difficult topics, we've managed to honour the memories of the lives affected and perhaps underscored the importance of awareness, advocacy and support for the victims, families and loved ones. Now, as we conclude this series, we encourage our listeners to take away not only the knowledge gained, hopefully, but also a heightened awareness of the impact such tragedies have on communities and individuals. It's perhaps a stark reminder to cherish and protect our loved ones. Thank you for your support. And in our next episode of Crime Time Inc. next week, we'll provide a complete contrast with a 40-year-old true crime story, a nightmare scenario at the time that caused absolute panic on a Scottish island. But as we'll hear from the victim herself, it had a much more palatable and heartwarming outcome. Join us then at Crime Time Inc. behind the blue line where the truth is much stranger than fiction.